So I remember being in college, and I was reading along with this psalm that we heard so beautifully sung today. And on one page was sort of the first quarter, maybe first half of the psalm. Praise your maker, take pleasure in the timbre, the timbrel and the harp, praise him, hallelujah. And then I turned the page, and with a two-edged sword in your hand, wreak vengeance upon the nations, bind their kings. I thought, maybe this is not the church for me. I'm not really sure if this is my exact job description. And then we hear Paul talking about loving neighbor being the whole of the law, the fulfillment of the law, all the commandments being summed up in this one act of love. So we sort of have to ask, who is it we're supposed to wreak vengeance on, and who is it we're supposed to love? Who are these enemies of God? Who are the neighbors? What divides the enemies from the neighbors? What is the line you cross and you're on the wrong side of the law? these texts, of course, are part of our worldview as Christians, part of the bedrock of our culture as Western people. So it's easy to forget that these are thousands of years old, that so many assumptions we make about these texts to Jewish people from 3,000 years ago or to Christian people from 2,000 years ago would seem like bizarre, insane assumptions. It's interesting to look back at what Jewish commentators and early Christian commentators had to say, writing about 400 years after today's gospel, St. Gregory of Nyssa is thinking about the same question. Who are the enemies of God? Who are the ones on which vengeance has to be wrecked? And he says that there are clear camps in this case. There are the enemies of God, and there are people on God's team. The people on God's team are the people created by God. Every human being, all of whom are created in his image and likeness. Those are the people on God's team. The enemies of God are the forces of death, the powers of evil. It is that which compels us to turn against God, that which compels us to turn against our neighbor, against our sister, against our brother. It is that which leads us into evil, darkness, death, destruction. And he said that sometimes we get confused and we see people acting bad and we assume they're just on the evil team. But he said it's sort of like ranks of, of soldiers arrayed against one another. So when someone on your side gets hit by an enemy bullet, you don't then turn on that person and shoot them as well. You drag them to safety. When you see a fellow Christian or a fellow non-Christian human being who has been hit by the enemy's bullets, enemies of unkindness, selfishness, greed, anger, fear, all the bad stuff, we don't then turn on them and attack them as an enemy of God. We drag them to safety, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa. But then we have texts like our first text, the death of the firstborn in Egypt in which we have God saying, I will pass through the land. You have to paint this blood upon your door. It feels sort of like strange and alien and creepy and also this very awful depiction of God killing those in the land of Egypt, the firstborn. The great theologian, maybe even greater mystery writer, Dorothy Sayers, in her book, The Mind of the Maker, talks about how we misunderstand the law of God and the judgments of God. She said that we hear the law of God when we think of the American or the British legal system. 
we think of we as a society have come together to say murder is wrong, and so we create this arbitrary penalty for murder. We don't want murder to happen, so we say murders, murderers have to spend life in prison. And we imagine that this is what God's like as well. God's law is, I, God says, I've put before you today the path of life and the path of death, the path of blessings, the path of curses, choose life. And we imagine that God has said, I also don't like murder. I have decided some arbitrary punishments for murderers, and that's just the way it is. Instead, Sayers said, we should think of God's law not in terms of criminal justice, but in terms of things like the laws of physics. So when you drop your keys, it's not as though we as a society have come together to say, when anyone drops their keys, they should be punished by making it fall to the floor and the gravity police come and do the dirty work. Instead, it's just an observation of cause and effect. This is the way the world works. This is the way things are. So God doesn't say, this is the path of life, peace and kindness, generosity, love, justice, mercy. This is the path of death, selfishness, murder, dishonoring father and mother, gossip. I'll punish you if you go on that one. I'll reward you if you go on this one. Instead, when you go on the path of life, you are moving closer to life. You are living more life. You are taking more life into you. You are more of a real living creature of God. And when you're on the path of death, you're straying further and further away from the one who is the source of all life. In this passage, we have this sort of collapse, Dorothy Sayers says, between God as the author of the creation, in which these processes of cause and effect take place, and God who's actually acting in this moment. But if you read further in the text, God doesn't visit the houses of the Israelites to take the life of the firstborn. Instead, we're told it is the angel of death. So we hear angel of death, and we think, okay, there's like kind of rock stars, there's Michael, there's Raphael, there's Uriel, there's Gabriel, you know, we have two windows here. And then there must be this other angel who's kind of like the one you don't want to hang out at the angelic office Christmas party with, you know, he's kind of like hiding out by the copier, it's the angel of death, stay away from that guy. But if you read the Talmud, this great collection of the oral Torah, one of the most sacred writings of Judaism, we're told by the Resh Lakesh that Satan, the evil inclination in the human heart, and the angel of death are one. This is not an angel of God, this is an angel of death itself. The angel of that which wages war against God. The angel of that which Paul calls the last enemy defeated by Christ. The angel of death itself. Another very early Christian writing in 123, Milito of Sardis says that in this moment, God is not the one hurting Egyptian children. God is the one throwing himself bodily, God the Son, Jesus Christ, throwing himself bodily between those who are willing to accept this blood of his life, his life's blood, and death itself. God is the one that is the barrier to humanity between death and life. So this is, these are very different ways of reading these passages than we might have today. And you might say to Milito of Sardis, okay, this is just some liberal neo-interpretation. You know, 123, where's the good old-time religion of 65 AD? You know, you're just, you're playing fast and loose with the truth, buddy. What is his criteria of interpretation? 
It's what we hear today in Romans, and it's what we hear every Sunday in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the Episcopal Church, we have the epistle read from the ambo or maybe the seat at the 8 a.m. service. We have the Old Testament lesson read from over there, maybe over a seat. We have the psalm sung by the choir. Then for the gospel, we take this big fancy book off the altar. We have a cross, we have the candles, we have the verger, we have this whole procession out to the midst of the people because the gospel for us, the love of Jesus Christ, this is the lens by which we view absolutely everything. Everything in scripture, everything in the church, and everything even in our own lives. This is our hermeneutic, the way we view absolutely everything as Christians. So in today's gospel, we have this passage in which we have the reality about living in human community. It's not this perfect world of absolute saints where nobody does anything wrong. It's a world in which people offend against one another. What do you do when someone in the church, someone in your life becomes an enemy of God, someone who offends against you? Typically, you stew, you get frustrated, you think bad thoughts, you gossip, you vent your frustrations to others. How often do you go to them one-on-one and say, in humility and love, this is my perception of what happened. Can we talk about this? And then if they say, to heck with you, you schmuck, then you go back to them with an impartial observer or two. Someone to help facilitate, someone to help the conversation along, to help you both hear another perspective. And if they still say to heck with you, then you take your concerns to the whole church, asking the whole community to help you in love, in humility, reconcile with this person. And then, if that doesn't work, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. (laughs) A Gentile, someone who does not yet know the profound depths of the love of God. A Gentile like one of those who all the apostles gave their lives serving in far-flung parts of the globe. A tax collector like Matthew, the author of this gospel, to whom Jesus came and opened his eyes to the goodness and love of God. What would it be like if we actually approached Holy Scripture, if we actually approached the church, if we actually approached one another always trusting in the mercy of the Lord, as our colleague says, always trusting in the goodness of God, the love of God, the peace of God, as the ultimate reality underlying all things. Amen.